0: Welcome to Education Perspectives. I am your host, Liza Holland. This is a podcast that explores the role of education in our society from a variety of lenses. Education needs to evolve to meet the needs of today and the future. Solving such huge issues requires understanding. Join me as we begin to explore the many perspectives of education. So we are happy to welcome today Marcy Ansley. She is nearing her 13th year as the Executive Director at the Hearing and Speech Center. In addition to this role, she has worked in nonprofit leadership for nearly 30 years at local, regional, and national organizations like Arbor Youth Services, the American Red Cross, the Alzheimer's Association, and Hospice of the Bluegrass. Marcy and Eric, her husband of 26 years, are both transplants to Lexington, Kentucky, She is originally from Warren, Ohio. Marcy's most important role is being the parent of a child, now a young adult, with hearing loss, Alexander Ansley. He is her daily inspiration as he is the poster child for early intervention. She is an active volunteer within the Episcopal Church community. She is a sustaining member of the Junior League of Lexington and was the president in 2011. She has volunteered with many local organizations and school-based groups and is currently a member of the A.G. Bell Association, the treasurer of the National Association of Hearing and Speech Centers, and she is on the board of Big Brothers, Big Sisters of the Bluegrass. We welcome Marcy. Welcome, Marcy, to Education Perspectives. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you for having me. It's really honored. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, and I'm going to kick us off with our... um First question to every guest, taking that 30,000 foot view, why do you think that we as a society invest in education? That is such a good question. And I think I've heard it before.
1: (laughs) But fundamentally, I think investing in education is truly an investment in our future without having some method of, of a foundation for our children and even adults for social growth, for personal growth, in order to help our society to move forward either through technology and advancements, I feel like we have to have that that foundation for our future.
0: Good answer. So I know you have done a lot of different nonprofit things over your work experience, but now you have kind of landed into education. And obviously there were elements of education in all of the things that you did before But what drew you to the Lexington Hearing and
1: Speech Center? Well, I always feel like I'm kind of education adjacent in my role. And overarchingly, the Hearing and Speech Center, as you intimately know, has been part of our family's journey for the last almost 23 years. And I, I gulp when I say that I've been in the nonprofit sector in our community for almost 30 years. But <laughs> so when this opportunity arose, it was my dream job. I wanted to work at an organization that truly, one, well, not only impacted our family's life. A little backstory. My son, or our Eric and I son, Alex, will be 23 in December, and he failed his newborn hearing screening. We were very lucky in Kentucky at that point, they had just passed regulation that required newborn hearing screenings, literally five months before he was born. So we were able to get that diagnosis very, very early on. And he started here, we started here as a family when he was two months old. So I've been able to not only live through him, all every aspect of our organization. So from our speech language clinic and audiology clinic, and also the early education. So I've got to witness it as parent first, and became actively involved as a volunteer with the organization. And then, when at that time, almost thirteen years ago, the executive director was moving, she knew it was my dream job to come and be part of an organization that really made Alex's journey so seamless. You know, we were able to transition. We chose. Public school, and we were able to transition so seamlessly into our local public school with all of the supports that he needed. He was on par with his hearing peers, so he didn't require an IEP. Not that that's a good thing or a bad thing, but we were just really kind of proud that he was truly a, a poster child for early intervention. And and he's continued today. You know, he's still here because so we we do have a full family audiology clinic. So he'll probably be a lifer as long as he lives in our community. Um, I don't see him really going anywhere else because he calls half the people who work here aunties. So they're they're definitely part of our family. They've been part of our journey. And so almost 13 years ago, I was able to step into this role as executive director and work for this really special kind of unicorn of an organization. Like with the fact that we get to have early education from the age of six weeks through kindergarten and wrap around, all that wrap around early intervention supports in our building every day. So for somebody like Alex who wore hearing or wears hearing aids, if he had an issue, it could be addressed immediately. There is no waiting. There's no waiting for things like uncovering he was missing the S sound or or anything like that. So we can quickly intervene when we need to with any of our children in our center. And so today, we're, we're in an old elementary school, which also makes it really fun. <laughs> we, we feel kind of the love of the last almost 100 years that was in this building when it was a public school. And so we have about 165 kiddos as, as, in 13 classrooms
0: here. And it's, it's a special place. It is indeed. So tell me, what do you absolutely love about what you do? Oh, my gosh.
1: I There's a handful of things that I love. I love walking down the hallways in our early learning center and getting high fives and lots of hugs. And I love it when kids recognize me by literally the shoes that I'm wearing. So if I don't have loud shoes on that day, they're very confused so they have a to wear a lot of heels and boots. And so <laughs> the things that come out their mouths are absolutely hysterical. And to watch the interaction of our team, our staff, we have 40 in our early learning center staff, they know every child and they embrace every child and every family as if they were their own. And I I just think it's magical to watch that journey and to be part of families' lives from whether they have a, a diagnosis or not, being part of their journey right from the get-go. And whether that's and sometimes it can get really bumpy and, and it can be a grieving time. And to be there for families when they get those diagnoses and to know that. They have people who love and support them along the way and are willing to help find every intervention possible to make their children's early educational career as successful as possible. And And so those are things that I, I absolutely love. And selfishly, all those smiles and high fives and hugs melt my heart, so... <laughs> And I feel like I'm kind of like an aunt or a grandmother who can go down and read books and have fun. But if a diaper needs to be changed or we're having a tantrum, I can just walk away. (laughs) I love that. So it's a lot of fun. I just, I I do. I love it.
0: Well, you know, hearing loss is definitely something that can be an obstacle for students along their education journey and you know as you've alluded to early intervention can make a critical difference. Can you talk a little bit more about the variety of services that you are offering there and how that impacts kids readiness to be able to go into school? Sure so we
1: are a listening and spoken language environment so we are the only rehabilitative center in the state of Kentucky that provides listening and spoken language interventions. And what that means is that for a baby or a child who's been identified with hearing loss, if their parents are choosing oral language or listening and spoken language modality, as opposed to sign language, they're most likely going to be here at some point in that journey. And so for little ones, we start as young as a couple of weeks old. So as soon as a baby fails a newborn hearing screening, for example, in a hospital, or they're getting, we're getting a referral from a home birth or from pediatrician office or an ENT practice, wherever that may be, wherever we're getting the referrals from, we can do the first brain activity testing as young as two weeks. So we can identify hearing loss so much earlier now and help families make the decision on what type of intervention they want to do. And so in our audiology clinic, we do have folks that are are total communication. They're choosing to come here still for their audiology support. Whether that be using a hearing device or not, hearing aids, if they're on the path for a cochlear implant. So we literally are that guide by a family side from the very beginning on making those decisions. So if their child has a profound hearing loss, our audiology team and speech therapy team are with them to decide do they want to go through with that surgery? If so, which device is going to be best for their child? And then the bone-anchored hearing aids. So we are and we also help with all of all of those for children that don't have external ears. So we do a bone anchor hearing device. And so it eventually becomes an implantable. But when they're little, they wear it on a headband because as they're growing, they can't be implanted yet. So we have right from the start. And then we implemented about five years ago, once teletherapy was really starting to take off, we started a four session free program called Teletalk and Teach. And it's for anyone's families of zero to three year olds. <laughs> the, the babies are usually playing the whole time, but they're for families of our zero to three year olds who want an introduction to listening and spoken language. So they get four free sessions, and at that point, we can transition them into speech therapy. And we so we can start, you know, speech therapy as young as a couple months old because we want to build the listening. Component, which then builds the auditory brain portion for our kiddos with hearing loss, which is directly related to reading. So that's why we start all of this so early with our kiddos with hearing loss, because it's all a direct linkage. Our auditory brain is a direct linkage to our literacy foundation. So we want to make sure that we can optimize every moment of those little brains being able to suck in and as much information as possible. And like we have a lot of children that don't even attend our early learning center. So From an outpatient standpoint, we're looking at about 2,000 families and 120 of them are in our school. So our reach from an early intervention standpoint is truly statewide and not just in Fayette County.
0: Well, that was exactly what I was going to, uh, to interrupt you to talk about was the fact that you actually really, especially with the advent of telemedicine and whatnot, are really able to reach out on a statewide type of a basis. And so you're providing services that were previously not available.
1: Exactly. Or very difficult for families. And it was a barrier for families to try to get here on a weekly basis because we know that the more intervention that we can give to a child, the better off they're going to be in the long run. But if we have a child who's driving in or family driving in two to three hours every week for a speech therapy session, it's not realistic and it's not going to happen. And so once we were able, from a regulatory standpoint, all of that changed in 2018, 2019 in Kentucky. So we were very lucky uh, that speech therapy was included in that. And so we were able to get uh, that launched very quickly. Again, being a nonprofit, it helps. We were able to get a lot of grant funding to help support it so we didn't have to charge families right away. And now insurance is starting to pay. So that's very exciting to see that transition. And the other nugget that when we were talking about our kiddos with hearing loss in particular, We sit on a Kentucky Commission for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing Committee, and this started several years ago around language acquisition for very young children with hearing loss, and it kind of trickled its way down. They were doing through Kentucky Department of Education and some testing with kids and recognizing reading levels and just kind of graduation rates for our kids with hearing loss is very, very poor in our state. And so... It kept going backwards in this conversation and the language acquisition, the final proposal to the state left Kentucky Department of Education altogether and went all the way back to the early intervention system, recognizing that if we don't address this at zero to three, making any level of hearing loss a qualifier for the early intervention program in the state, it didn't really matter what happened at three to five because we lost three years. So, that has been passed, and that is now in place. So that's been very exciting. So when we talk, like when I think education, I start at birth in my brain <laughs> for what we're do, for what we do and what we're thinking. So that was a really neat. I hadn't been part of any kind of committee like that in the past, and specific to education. So it was really interesting to watch how that all came together. It took a couple of years, but we got it, and it's been passed. So that's exciting. <laughs>
0: That is very exciting. It's really important that our legislators recognize the importance of attacking some of these underlying challenges before kids ever even get into this track where if they don't have the skill set from the beginning, it will continue to snowball for them as throughout the education system. Oh, so that's really exciting. And I would like to point out to our listeners that the Hearing and Speech Center is not just for kids. I have a focus on the education part of it, but you're able to service entire families and anybody who even doesn't have kids, right?
1: We do. Yes. So in our Family Hearing Center, we call it twinkle to wrinkle. So we've talked a little bit about, I mean, I guess our twinkles could be 100 also. So, but <laughs> So that's where... We literally will start with babies a couple weeks old, and then our oldest client in audiology right now is 104, and we literally have people of all ages in between. And they did not have to go to school here, be an alumni here. We have a lot of our families in our early learning center who have really uncovered and discovered that they had hearing loss by being here. So we do a lot of family events where we encourage people to get tested. There's kind of that nice number that a baseline hearing screening should happen at age 40. It's not part of our mainstream dialogue in medical care. And it really needs to be like shame on us in audiology land. That's not talking about enough, I guess, but because our hearing really impacts our entire body system. So when we're going in to check things like our eyes and our blood pressure and our cholesterol, we really should be getting that baseline hearing test every year from the time we're 40. And, and we have a, a, we call it a hearing quiz on our website, so that at least gives, could give at least a little nugget for folks if they're concerned. And it's a starting point. We, of course, feel like everyone should go in and, and see an audiologist to get that testing because it is a medical intervention at that point.
0: Absolutely. And it is such an important component piece of communication, which is one of the skill sets that we need our entire lifetimes these days, especially in this information age. So I'll look that up and put it in the the link in the show notes so people can connect in there like that. I appreciate it. (laughs) I'll get on my soapbox because
1: you're right. It it impacts everything from you know, our our social emotional, our vocational, academic, and most overwhelmingly, our quality of life, you know, we don't have that connectedness to other humans. And whatever our communication modality is that connectedness, when that goes away, can impact and lead to things like dementia. So we really are I want to make sure we can shout from the rooftops that people should get their hearing tested. <laughs> and hearing aids are not just for the elderly. So we're seeing a huge rise of folks in their early 20s get needing hearing devices. And we think a lot of that might have to do with noise induced hearing loss, with, you know, our earbuds and all that good stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's the technology for hearing aids has really advanced as well. So I know when I see Alex, I forget sometimes that he has them because they're so discreet. Yeah. (laughs) And he can
1: manage it on his, on his Apple watch and you can manage it on your phone and all these different settings. They're amazing. They're just incredible. These great computers and and ears.
0: So I know one of my favorite things is to hear stories about what's going on at the center. Do you have a favorite story or a memory um, about your work you could share? I've got one in particular, besides Alex, (laughs) you know, I could talk about him all day. (laughs) uh,
1: But we had a little girl, probably two years after I started, a little girl who started with us and she had been in the foster care system and she was going through an adoption process. And when she moved in with her foster mama, who ended up becoming her mom, her adoptive mama, she had literally lived in a crib for almost two years. And had no interaction with humans and really just lived like a feral child. It was just incredibly sad. And she came to us. She was one of our toddlers and and ended up being here for five years, which was fantastic. And she knew, I think, two signs. She knew the sign for cookie and sleep. So she immediately started speech therapy here. We tested her for hearing loss because they thought that she had some hearing loss and she didn't. But fast forward... She was here for five years. So she went all the way through and did two years of kindergarten with us because our kindergarten program can count as kindergarten year. We have several kids that use it as transitional, but it can be a kindergarten year. So when she went on to first grade at public school, we had gotten a note from her teacher and her teacher did not know her history yet at that point. She had just met her like the first week of school when we were checking in and she sent back about how amazing this little girl was. And that she was doing such a good job and that she was so happy to have her in the classroom. And when she had heard her backstory, she was just bored and had no idea. And her adoptive mother gave all these little Popsicle dolls that said, thank you for giving me a voice. And it was heart-wrenching. I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, we literally gave this little girl a voice and were able to help her transition into first grade with no one knowing how horrible her start was, and the fact that she—I know—is incredible. And then fast forward like six months, she was in, in big school. I mean, this we call a public or private school. And we—I uh, was at Bob Evans with my family for brunch one Sunday, and she's there, and she comes running over to our table, and I get a huge hug, and she tells me all about school. And her new backpack, <laughs> all about what her teachers were do- want, like and what she was doing in class. And it just absolutely melted to my heart. And now that, that's what probably almost 10 years ago, it has just stuck with me from the beginning, the major impact that we're making. And we get to do this all the time. It's just fantastic.
0: Boy, that's so exciting. I know. It's great. So, going from the highest high, <laughs> tell me a little bit about the challenges and obstacles that you face?
1: Being in an early education environment, I one of the largest challenges, I think, for us is society truly recognizing the importance of early education and that it should start before three. And I feel like that's huge. And because of that societal impact, we're not seeing a lot of college graduates anymore coming out with early childhood education because it's not, whether it's not valued or we know the pay scales are vastly different. And so the rising cost of living in general is causing, maybe not causing folks not to go into the field, but I think the fact that it, it doesn't get the kudos that I think it deserves. And our zero to five teaching staff are rock stars. They are really the foundation for making sure that all of these little ones know how to go on to school to be successful. And if we can't support our zero to five educators and education, then what's going to happen once they hit five? And we saw that massively after COVID. And it was real. You know, we heard all of these stories about kindergartners coming in and past and not potty trained and not knowing their alphabet or colors or ABCs or reading. And so we know that there's a massive impact with early education. I think that's one of our biggest challenges is as a societal look at, it's not daycare. This is early childhood education. It is not the same. We are here if if you choose a true, you know, five-star program, this is a private school getting you the education that your child deserves. And that should be accessible for anybody who wants it. And and so that's the other piece is the accessibility because there's not public funding for most of this currently. It really becomes a federal, state and local issue. Talk about universal preschool, pre-K, I think too, because while that sounds great, at the end of the day, we already have that in place. We've got Early Start, Early Head Start, we've got Head Start, and they start at three and four years old, but what about our zero to threes? And those programs are only three hours a day, they run in a school year and they're not even all school year long. So it's while that sounds wonderful, most families today don't have the luxury of having a child in school for three hours a day and that being it. Most families need an environment that's gonna be 730 to 536 to six or something even vastly different. And so I think investing in quality early childhood education is key for us to be able to have. A robust workforce moving forward to be able to support, you know, our quote unquote working poor now to be able to make that entire system easier for them to access high quality early education is critical.
0: I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I think that that speaks to even the larger issue of we're the only advanced society that doesn't really invest in childcare, much less some of the early school types of things because. It really is a global societal issue. And I had the opportunity to to do some consulting in the area of early childhood education. And the amount of learning that happens before they ever reach school is absolutely phenomenal and you know as a parent i kind of went i almost am glad i didn't know all of this because it is so high stakes (laughs) It's
1: just, i do i sit back and i'm amazed you know and again going back to stories for a second we had a three-year-old in our our, this is several years ago and she was talking to her grandmother who was a physics professor at uk and this little girl had cochlear implants and her grandmother was driving home one day she's like oh Look at those pretty birds. They're in V formation. And she's like, Tutu, they're migrating south for the winter. And she's like, she knew migration at three. <laughs> and so, right? I mean, just, and that's what's happening in high-quality educational environments. Like, we are truly preparing the next you know, high school, college graduates now, or trade school graduates, all of the above today and And I we don't get this world of real education. I don't think gets the credit it deserves for the work that's happening from that zero to five.
0: I absolutely agree with you, which kind of leads into our my final question, which is about what you would like decision makers to know. And it sounds like we have some things to tell our legislators. I th-
1: I think really one, I don't think it's I don't want to say I think it's the public schools responsibility, because I, I don't think that's fair to look backwards that far. But at the same time, at least in Kentucky, we have an amazing office of early childhood education. And being able to invest through that system, which again, we've seen it happen. It's been going on through through ARPA funding. And so we know it can exist. How can that be strengthened? Because we're getting to a point where there's a couple of things happening. So rising costs of just regular day living and this living wage is getting to a point where most again, child care, high quality childcare centers, any child care center in early education environment, we you can't afford to operate anymore. So centers are closing left and right. There's a huge demand because more and more people have to have either dual income or single income or multiple jobs. So we know it's a critical a component to society and to our economic workforce. Without this layer, things are going to crumble. And so we have to start figuring out how to invest in these programs better, into our programs like ours better, um, but at every level. <laughs> it doesn't, and and not dumping it onto somebody else because the school system they already have their plan. They already, you know, they're working through early start and head start. And that's set into place. We got to back it up and take a look at how can we do that just a little bit stronger, a lot stronger. And then also supporting those families who need child care assistance. So the process to get that right now, I'll give you again a story. We've had a family who has been on it for several years on child care assistance. They terminated her in June for we don't know why. And if she has, if we are now in September, she's still not back on. And this is a family who's been on it for years. So we being the center we are, we'll keep her child here for as long as we can and help her advocate along the way to get what she needs. And so I don't think legislators know what's really happening boots on the ground. And so while we have all these beautiful systems, quote unquote, in place, they're not working and they're not working for our workforce. And so then it just forces people to potentially quit their job. And have no income, then what? And then that child's at home doing what? Nothing, potentially. So there's just there's just a lot of different layers to what to be
0: solved. Yeah. Yep. I like that you point that out. It's no, there's no use in finger pointing. It's a situation that we have, and we need to rethink how we're approaching things to be able to, you know, keep what works, but you know, add on, tweak, change, eliminate, whatever it happens to be to better meet the needs of our students and our society in general. Right. Absolutely. Oh, God, this has been such a great discussion. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Well, super. I appreciate it so very, very much. And as I mentioned, I will go ahead and put the, the link to the center's website on in the show notes so if people are looking to maybe take your little quiz or find out about the great services that you have to offer that they can do that as well and please do read the show notes to great quotes and podcast shout outs and all that kind of stuff for Marcy so thank you so very much thanks Liza I appreciate it appreciate you thank you so much for listening to this episode of education perspectives feel free to share your thoughts on our facebook page Let us know which education perspectives you would like to hear or share. Please subscribe and share with your friends.